cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, July 24th, 2012. You know, I can't remember ever doing a program like I'm going to do today, at least the second hour. I'll explain in a minute. Strange story. One of those ones that leaves you scratching your head. I'll explain. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is... No shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said about God. Um, in fact, um, I think it was Dan, uh, Daniel Price, uh, Pastor Daniel Price of uh, Trinity Church of Northwest Arkansas, who uh, he was raised in, uh, in, we remember the interview I did with him last week, he was raised in the charismatic movement. And uh, when I had breakfast with him when we were on our way home from vacation, uh, him and the uh, members of his church, he had said something that was kind of interesting. He said, you know, the way the Charismatics and the Pentecostals are, you would come to the conclusion that God the Holy Spirit is like some really crazy, whacked out, weird, embarrassing uncle in your family. And it's like, yeah, there's the Holy Spirit, you know. We don't usually let him out of his room very often, but when, you know, and you know, he's the one who wants us to put our underwear on our head and go skinny dipping, you know, in the in the lake, you know, weird things like that, you know. It's so. <clears throat> by the way, that's not God, the Holy Spirit, you know, which leads me to think that uh, that I think that there is a false Holy Spirit, a false doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and you know, a different God that may be worshipped in some of these settings. And in some of these churches. But anyway, I bring all that up, you know, to, to kind of make this point. The fact that there is a crazy, bizarre, bad teaching regarding the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't work. Or that um, just because there are people out there who are, who have, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, completely false dreams, false visions, false prophecies and stuff like that, that there is no such, you know, that, that doesn't mean that there can't be a true manifestation of such a thing. 
it would be rare and it would be you know it would have to be tested and this is why um in uh, previous episodes of fighting for the faith i haven't made myself out to be a strict cessationalist uh, not cessationalist wrong word cessationist <laughs> Yeah, are you a strict uh, sensationalist or uh, you know? Sometimes you know, I I go back and I listen to previous episodes of Fighting for the Faith and go, you know, I've got to figure out how to hardwire the connection between my brain and my tongue a little bit better because sometimes I, you know, I listen to what I say and I go, how was that disconnected? Anyway, so here's the deal. What I mean by that is is that, um. I, I think the sign gifts are, you know, those are those are gone. Uh, you know, they've served their purpose in the point of the church, but that doesn't mean that Christ can can't act. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because in hour number two today, um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Doctor Uve Simonetto. Uh, He's a friend of my family. Uh, you know, I we used to attend the same church and at uh, Faith Lutheran in Capistrano Beach, California, and I've known Uve for a long time, and I've never known him to be um a signs and wonders kind of guy. In fact, he's like the polar opposite. He is a confessional Lutheran into uh, what he calls smells and bells, liturgical stuff like that. I mean, he has, you know, made the rounds internationally. He's been a journalist for 55 years and he recently published a piece in the uh, in in Christianity Today that just has me scratching my head. And and so uh, in fact, in fact, uh, he brought it to my attention when I when I was in uh, Southern California, and uh, at the Higher Things Conference, uh, Uva attended my uh, one of the evenings when I lectured on uh, on uh, evolution. In fact, I think my, uh, my the name of my lecture was Monkey Town: Jesus versus Darwin on Human Origins, and uh, uh, Dr. Simonetto uh, attended one of my lectures, and then afterwards we went to his home. And uh, and if you know, if you've ever been to Uva's home, I mean, this is the place where he holds court. I mean, <laughs> probably the best way to describe it. But I mean, he tells the most fascinating and amazing stories. I mean, and he, literally, you could you could you can go to his home week after week after week, and it's maybe it's the uh, the uh, the you know American Southern California equivalent of attending a salon. Anyway, but you can attend week after week, and he, you would never hear the same stories twice. And uh, and so he, he was while we were at his home, he he told me this the article that he had just finished up for Christianity Today, and he told me the details of it. And I was, I told him, I said, I don't, <laughs> I can't wrap my head around what it is that you're saying. It's, um, this is so different. And so what we're gonna do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is, uh. Hour number two, rather than doing a sermon review, um, earlier today I recorded an interview with uh, Dr. Simonetto regarding his most recently published article um, in, in uh, Christianity Today, and it's the name of it is entitled The Other Iranian Revolution, The Other Iranian Revolution. And it's a, it's a story about uh, Persian or uh, Iranian Muslims converting to Christianity in Europe. And uh, there's uh, there's a group of them who have been converted through the efforts of churches that have reached out in teaching uh, German as a second language. Keep in mind, Germany they teach uh, they speak German. That's the native language, and so they've been reaching out to the immigrants and teaching them how to speak German. And what what they've been doing is uh, the textbook that they've been using to teach them German is the Bible. And well, 
you know, we understand that God works through means, and so it makes sense that there are, there are Muslims who are being converted to uh, Christianity via these efforts. You know, where they're you know where they're reading uh, the scriptures, uh, and well, they're learning, they're reading them in German. But there is a subhead within this article that just has me going, huh? And huh? In the kind of ways that you know, you can't push it too hard, but. There, there's a whole group of Muslims uh, in Germany who are claiming, and uh, just work with me for a second here because this is like not my normal fare, who are claiming that they have, they had, had dreams or visions where Jesus appeared to them and told them to go to particular churches. Now, there these are people who are not seeking after these um these you know the, the you know these dreams or visions haven't had any since but uh, they've been you know apparently if if you're to you know, if you were to say that i believe that this is true the conclusion you got to come to is that jesus is appearing to them and sending them to congregations that are faithfully preaching the gospel and so uva you know as a a journalist who's covered the religion beat before um you know he, he you know, he's interviewed the several of the pastors, several of the people. In fact, his uh, nephew uh, con, uh, did the interviews of several of the of the Muslims who'd converted to Christianity to get this all thing. And so it's like one of those things you just got to go, okay, I, what do you make of this? And so the reason why I'm covering the story is because I, I think it's really, really easy for us as Christians because of all the bad stuff that's going on you know and all the you know the false doctrine false prophecies false teaching false dreams false visions to lose sight of the fact that god still well christ still reigns and he can do whatever he wants to do and so you know i i brought back to like first uh, uh, thessalonians chapter 5 verse 20 and 21 do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to that which is good. So what we're going to do, when we get to the end of this hour of uh, Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to read to you a portion of the article that uh, Dr. Simonetto recently wrote. And then uh, in hour number two, rather than doing a sermon review, we, you get to listen into the conversation I had with him because it's just one of those things where you go, okay, what do you make of something like this? And so, um, but, you know, I can tell you up front, that if there was ever something that kind of held up to scrutiny as you know as within the realm of really more than likely being real the, what uh, dr simonetto covers in this article you know it's 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 that and so you just go whoa okay this is different so anyway <laughs> chris you're not going the way of the harbinger no actually this is actually a very different than that okay this is very, very different than that. But what I, what I would love for you to do is listen with discernment and send in your two cents. Because here's the deal. You can't deny <laughs> the, what the fruit of this is, is that people are, you know, Muslims are being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and are being catechized, baptized, and publicly worshiping uh, the biblical Jesus in churches that are faithfully preaching uh, the gospel um, in Germany and in other places in Europe. So it's just, this is one of those things that you just go, okay, don't 
you know, you, you, we know that we have a category for this. I mean, the best way to think of it this way is like this, is that y'all ever been to, you know, you have the grocery store and they have those change machines now. And so they got a slot for pennies. They got a slot for nickels. They got a slot for dimes and quarters and, and even, you know, 50 cent pieces or dollars. Right. And, and you know, what happens is, is that you pay your money and then it goes and it spits out the change. Okay. Well, in biblical Christianity, there is a slot for bona fide for real miracles, bona fide for real, um, you know, intervention on the on the part of God. Okay, but if you were to look at that slot, um, it for the most part remains empty. It's it's not like it's filled to the brim. I mean, it's it remains empty. But all of a sudden, has dropped in this coin into that slot and you're going is that a slug nickel is that the real where did this come from so yeah anyway i i do this by way of reminding us all that we do hold to a miraculous faith and the faith the idea that christianity teaches that you know that it's true because the grave was empty Right, and there are instances in Scripture where well, you understand what I'm saying. Anyway, so I, I, I'm going to present it to you as one of those things where it's like, okay, here's the evidence. Let's test this thing. What do you think? That's the idea. So you know, the, we're going to take a look at the story and the evidence, and and you decide. You know, we're going we're going to do what First uh, Thessalonians says to test it. And we're going to test this thing to see if it's legit because. Here we've got a you know something that's fallen into this you know into the slot, and there's nothing else in that slot. But you know the question is, is that for real? But like I said at the opening of the program, I I can't remember the I don't even think I've ever done a program where the testing had even the possibility of it being true. So <laughs> this is new territory for me. I'm I'm not used to it. So we'll see what we can do with that. But anyway. So let's talk about what we're going to do with the rest of the program, though, because it's, it's going to be a while before we get to the interview with Dr. Simonetto. But um, I, got, I got some more email that I want to read from you today. I got two more emails uh, that, I, that I want to read regarding uh, uh, Rabbi Khan, and then I have a non-Rabbi Khan email that I want to take a crack at. We got a preview of, well, actually, uh, LifeChurch.tv during, the rec- uh, during a recent worship set, and I put the word worship in quotes. Uh, performed the song Gangsta's Paradise, which kind of leads to the question, why on earth would somebody, anybody who calls themselves Christian during a church service play Gangsta's, Gangsta's Paradise? I'm even messing that up. Uh, we got a Patricia King update, and then uh, by way of um, continuing with uh, our, our Rabbi Khan coverage. Now, I want to make something clear up front here at the beginning of the program, and that's this, is that I may have mentioned this yesterday, that there's two things that I wanted to keep separate as we as we took a look at Rabbi Khan and, and the book The Harbinger, and that was I wanted to deal straight up with the content of what The Harbinger teaches. And it's pretty clear um, you know, at least from my reading of the book, that he preaches the gospel. I mean, he proclaims the biblical gospel right at the end of the book, and he does it in a very clear and succinct and understandable way. It makes perfect sense. Uh, however, that being the case, that you've got all that other stuff regarding the harbingers and stuff like that that precedes that final chapter, which basically leads to the question, is the teaching of Rabbi Khan 
a similar kind of mixed bag. And, uh, you know, and I would basically say based upon my uh, survey of his teaching, the answer is yes. And so what I'm going to do, uh, it, it's second half of this hour, is uh, play for you a little bit, give you a sampling of Rabbi Khan's teaching from his own Vimeo account so that you can get a better idea of, uh, of you know, what it is that he teaches. And the reason I bring this up and the reason I'm doing this today is that I wanted to really cover the topic of the Harbinger, the Covenants and Israel and all that kind of stuff and the United States all on its own merits before we took a look at Rabbi Khan because I didn't want the two to end up being you know muddied together into one thing. And so, you know, and so, you know, you get what I'm saying there. But uh, so yesterday's program, I think we, I, well, I'm happy. I'm, I'm convinced that I succeeded in helping y'all understand kind of the bigger issues regarding the biblical covenants. And that's really the key. When you, when you biblically understand what's be, what's taught in scripture regarding the covenants, all of a sudden the fog clears and you go, of course the United States isn't in covenant relationship with God. Of course that's not the case. Because, yeah, and then, ah, yeah, well, clearly Isaiah uh, 9 10 isn't about America. Right. Because when you really understand the underlying and the underpinning foundational doctrine, then what happens is you realize the United States doesn't fit anywhere on that foundation and the whole thing just disappears. I think we've successfully done that. Now we can take a closer look at some of the things that Rabbi Khan teaches. And for lack of a better way of putting it, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, much the same way that the Harbinger is a mixed bag. I think Rabbi Khan's teaching is a mixed bag too, and I'll, I'll play for you some relevant stuff to kind of, you know, at least help you get an idea of what he's all about. And uh, so, and then, like I said, hour number two, we're going to be, I'm going to be interviewing Uva Simonetto uh, regarding this uh, recent article that was published in Christianity Today entitled "The Other Iranian Revolution." I'll, I'll, I'll read some of it before the interview, and then kick it back to you guys for your feedback. It's this is just one of those strange things that. Well, I've never seen anything quite like it come up in my lifetime and just, okay, what do we do with this thing? So you know, I'll kick it back to you and ask you, guys, well, what do we do with this thing? So so that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So if you would like to uh, you know, make yourself comfortable, that by the way, that is you know, the best way to listen to Fighting for the Faith is making yourself comfortable. If you want to uh, kick up your feet, put on some fuzzy bunny slippers. A fuzzy bunny slippers actually do enhance the overall experience of listening to Fighting for the Faith. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to become enslaved to that good gift that God has given us. That would be kind of silly. And you know, being enslaved to a gift, why would you do that? But, uh, you know, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And uh, our first up today, I don't have any intro music because, well, it's the music itself that we're going to be listening to. So uh, from a recent <clears throat> worship set at Craig Rochelle's church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, LifeChurch.tv. Um, or maybe it's Oklahoma City. I you know, I forget which, which of the campi this was done at, but... Either way, this is from Craig Rochelle's church. Does it make any sense to play this during church? Remember, the thoughts will be with you always. I'm 
understand the mix isn't so good but i mean you get what's being sung here i mean at least weird owls uh, version of it you know had a guy with a bible but um you know passages like james 4 4 come to mind you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god or first john chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, I mean, I can't think of a more worldly song than Gangsta's Paradise. And why on earth would you bring this into church? John chapter 15, 18 through 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me uh, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I have chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Isn't that what gangsta, being a gangsta is all about, is being lawless? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I, a gangster is not somebody who is known for, well, shining the light of Jesus. Quite the opposite. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And, and God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. 
Almighty. Yeah, gangster's paradise. I think that would qualify as an unclean thing. It would be uh, trying to have fellowship with darkness in a place that's supposed to be shining the light of cre- uh, of Christ. Uh, this just flat-out worldly idolatry. I mean, that's the only way to see it, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, moving along. Going to do a little bit of email here. Two regarding the Harbinger and one non-Harbinger email. Okay, um, Jonathan writes, I'm not sure where Jonathan's from, but Jonathan writes, he says, Chris, I'm so glad that you did your homework to the benefit of all of your listeners. I wanted to start by saying, I'm glad Rabbi Jonathan concludes the book with the gospel, and I'm glad he agrees that the church at large needs repentance and adherence to biblical Christianity. That being said, I want to also say that Rabbi Jonathan seems to be a bit chameleonic. I listened to the other interviews that he did and listened to the Sid Roth bit as well. I spent most of my life as a believer in those circles, ElijahList.com and others, where daily conversation, everyone was always on the lookout for the latest prophetic sign. On Sid Roth's show, Jonathan seemed to be in excited agreement with how these were without a doubt true prophetic signs from God to America. But in your interview, he seemed to allow a more... Uh, give-and-take view, admitting its subjectivity. In regard to that subjectivity, he stated, I didn't go looking for these signs. I was just praying and was led to that verse, and then continued to add that he had no prior knowledge of the so-called American Harbingers and didn't try to make the text fit the circumstances, but claimed it just did for those circumstances. I remember learning in psychology that there are times when you can convince yourself or others of something that isn't actually true. If I look at a cloud and see the name Jonathan and say to you, look, that cloud says Jonathan, then you'll look with the expectancy and that it is true and, and you will most likely see it. If I just say to you, look at that cloud, do you see anything? You most likely will not see what I see. That being said, I think sometimes in the circles of what they call prophecy, it's more like borderline divination. Divination being a way to systematically organize seemingly disconnected bits of information or events through divine revelation, coming to a conclusion, providing insight into a specific mystery or problem. Sound familiar? Right? Good points, Jonathan. Good email. Okay, moving along. Uh, Matt writes, again, I'm not sure where Matt's from, but he writes, he says, For me, your interview drew out a fundamental question regarding uh, Christian writing. Is an author allowed to hide behind the veil of fiction and have carte blanche to twist Christian theology, etc., to tell a story? I give an emphatic no. Everything that is written about uh, the Christian triune God or his church from the beginning of time through the end of time should be carefully normed. If something is not norma normata in its intent and construction, it should not be called Christian literature at all. Oh, great point. Uh, my aside is regarding the sub, uh, subtle idol of pe- patriotism. So he's gonna, Matt's going to give us an aside here. I walked out of a church service around the 4th of July because our praise and worship service was overtly patriotic. 
I don't mean we sang one song. We sang two patriotic songs, said the pledge, and listened to a reading from the Declaration of Independence. Ooh, not good. I waited a week to calm down and make sure I wasn't speaking from anger, and I approached the campus pastor and expressed my convictions. I was told I was being ov- overly critical, and I was suggested uh, it was suggested I read a book about how our country started as a Christian nation. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, that story hasn't yet uh, ended, but I tell it to point out how thoroughly patriotism has infiltrated our churches, Texas Baptist Church here. Uh, it was for freedom that he has set us free, and the freedom in our Constitution is completely insufficient in light of God's freedom and grace. It seems to me that Khan is somewhat under this patriotic spell himself. America is a great place to live. But in the eyes of God, it has fallen in a nasty place. Thanks for your hard work, Matt. Matt, great email. Thanks. And you know, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's, you know, that's whole. They all, you know, that's the idea. It's narcissistic eisegesis on a national level, and and kind of patriotism as an idol. By the way, I am, I'm happy to say that I attend a church that. It's the Sunday that was closest adjacent to the Fourth of July. We just picked up where the lectionary left off as far as what our readings were supposed to be, you know, teaching. So the pastor didn't find a way to weave in the United States into um, our service, which I think is the right thing to do. We as Christians have important work to do. In the public sector, they don't like mixing church and state. Listen, in the church sector, we shouldn't mix them either. I mean, I we each church that preaches the gospel is an embassy of the kingdom of god we got kingdom business to do and that kingdom business doesn't actually involve building up the united states just you know something i i think is important there so anyway thanks matt great email good points okay now this next email comes from paul and paul is not writing about the harbinger in fact he's got a, a different topic that he's uh Writing about, it. he says, "Hey Chris, I just listened to the survey of historical heresies, uh, Socinianism. I have to say, I was shaken to hear a heresy that shared so many of my prior and perhaps some of my current beliefs. One question I have after listening: How are Christians to become uh, to come to the conclusion that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible word? If we come to that conclusion by way of reason, aren't we placing reason above biblical authority since by reason we believe biblical authority? I want to have a, uh, the Bible as my ultimate authority, but I can't find a way to do that without filtering it through my reason. Can you help a brother out? Thanks for all that you do. Paul, this is a great question. And what I would basically say, understand this, there's a right way to use reason and there's a wrong way to use reason. And the idea is, is that it's reason is a gift given to us by God that gives us the ability, you know, through reason, we are, we can understand things, apprehend them. But where reason crosses the border is when we use our reason and we hold it above scripture. Okay, that's where the problem comes in. So what happens is, is that Socinianism basically says is that reason is above God's word and whatever is not reasonable with my reason 
it has to be rejected. And therefore, what happens is, is that that's what we would call a magisterial use of reason rather than what's called a ministerial use of reason. Ministerial use of reason is understanding that reason is like a tool. Um, you can think of it as a hammer. You can think of it as, you know, in a very elaborate hammer or a, a screwdriver or a power drill or something like that. It has a particular use and function. And when it's being misused. It's it's being misused when it is you know basically put above scripture. Now, let me give you another question. How can we come to the conclusion as Christians that the Bible is the errant, infallible word of God? I'm going to give you an answer to that which your reason can apprehend, but doesn't put reason into the magisterial role where it's governing scripture. Here's the idea. Okay, if we take the New Testament as an ancient collection of documents. You'll notice that in the New Testament that there are four biographies, okay? The the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? Matthew itself claims to be written by an eyewitness. John claims to be written by an eyewitness, and the gospel of Luke um doesn't claim to be written by an eyewitness, but claims to be a biography a, a historical biography compiled by Dr. Luke after he did a journalistic series of interviews with the eyewitnesses in order to construct his gospel. Okay, so here's the idea: is that if we if we understand properly, using reason to understand what these documents claim to be, they claim to, claim to be biographies written by eyewitness testimony. Some of its uh, first, uh, you know, basically it's. Primary material, in other words, and others of it are are based on interviews from primary sources. The idea is is that here's what they tell us. Okay, these biographies tell us that roughly two thousand years ago, there was a guy by the name of Jesus who lived in Judea. Okay, he claimed to be the God of the Jews in human flesh, and he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. Um, by order of uh, the the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, okay, that the, his resurrection from the grave that occurred on the third day after he was crucified was witnessed by over five hundred people, okay. So what we know is is that we've got this amazing ancient you know account written by multiple biographers, all claiming and attesting the same thing. Now, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, okay. If he is who he claimed to be, that is, the God of the Jews, not just any old God, but the God of the Jews, Yahweh, in human flesh, if he truly is Yahweh in human flesh, then we can say that we now have somebody who can speak authoritatively regarding how we're to understand Scripture. Okay, so the idea is, I think, a very simple way to get to the idea of inerrancy and infallibility and authority is not based upon philosophical um, syllogisms, but based upon eyewitness testimony to the one guy who really has the best evidence out there for the existence of God, and that would be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, so then what you would need to do then is go in and look, how did Jesus, how did he handle the Scripture? And you'll notice that Jesus, he talks of Adam and Eve as being created, that he speaks of, you know, of their of their sons, Cain and Abel, as if they're historical people. 
he talks about uh, Adam as if he knows, uh, uh, you know, as if he knew. He talks about Abraham as if he knew Abraham. Um, you, he talks about the Exodus as being literal history. Um, he talks about the fact that Moses parted the Red Sea, that Jonah was spent three uh, days uh, in the uh, belly of a large fish. Um, and so all of the, and, and that the world was, and not only that, Jesus taught that the world, there was a global flood and that Noah and his family were the only who, uh, only people who survived it. So here's the idea is that when we talk about uh, inerrancy and infallibility, a lot of times the first things that come against that concept really have to go with, do you really believe Jonah was in the belly of a large fish for three days? Do you really believe that the Red Sea was part of, do you really believe you know that the world was flooded. Things like that, that. Adam and Eve were the first two human beings. The idea is is that that's usually the first line of attack against the inerrancy of Scripture, going with those miraculous accounts. Jesus never blushed regarding them and never taught them as anything other than actual history. And Jesus himself makes it clear that all of the Old Testament, he 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 refers to each individual section and the Old Testament as a whole as being God's word, that it cannot be broken, um, that it prophesies about him. And so the idea is this, is that a, kind of a rudimentary understanding of inerrancy is us looking at the historical biographies of the eyewitnesses and asking this question, what was Jesus's view of God's word? Okay, does Jesus ever attack it? Does Jesus ever cast doubt on it? Does Jesus ever say anything in such a way where he basically says, yeah, you know, listen, I understand the Old Testament says this and this miracle happened, but that's not really reasonable. And so um, we're going to find a more, you know, you know, easy to believe interpretation of these events. Jesus never does any of that. And so, and you're going to understand here that this doesn't rely upon philosophy. This doesn't rely upon reason in a magisterial sense. This relies upon you listening to what the eyewitnesses say, looking at the evidence, and looking at what Jesus believed regarding it. So, the idea is this you don't want to have a view of Scripture that is different than Jesus' view of Scripture. That is a, quote, reasonable argument and what i mean by that is is that it can be apprehended it's logically consistent but it doesn't make reason it put, doesn't put reason in the driver's seat it puts re- reason in the receiving seat completely different un- understanding there okay so that's where i would go with this that's how i would uh, work through it and then understand this also okay another way to look at that is this is that scripture Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says something very fascinating it says faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of Christ and so Christians those who've been brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins you got to understand how you came there came to be in where you've been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ is through the working of the word because God the Holy Spirit has attached his work to the preaching and reading and hearing of his word. God the Holy Spirit works through the word. God inspired all of the authors to um you know to write what they wrote. Okay, and God can't lie. And so the idea is is that you wouldn't even have faith if it weren't for the word of God. And so another m- metaphor that the ancients talked about and which the church historically has I want to say argued 
and it's it's an argument that has fallen out of use in our time, but it's a good ancient argument. And here's the idea: if you think of God's word as a fountain, or you know, uh, you know, maybe you know, maybe one of those springs, you know, you know, those artesian wells where water is coming out of the earth. Okay, the idea is this: is that that's the high point. Okay. And you wouldn't even have faith to believe in Christ if it were not for the Word of God. And so attacking God's Word and not believing, that's the work of the devil. I would point you to uh, Genesis 3. Uh, you know, that's, you know, attacking God's Word is the work of the devil. Doubt, doubting God's Word is literally the hallmark of the devil. And what you're doing when you attack God's Word is you're cutting yourself off from the only wellspring by which you can have faith in the first place. So doubt is not, you know, doubting and casting aspersions on God's word. That's not the work of God, the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus did. And that's the thing that undermines and completely unravels faith, period. And so, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's muddying up the very waters that are bringing you life. So that's the idea. But again, that's that's just a metaphor. But if you really want to talk about uh, how can you properly understand inerrancy? It's real simple. Look at the the historical biographies uh, regarding Jesus, because he claimed to be the God of the Old Testament in human flesh, and don't have a different view of Scripture than he has for this very reason, because you don't got the credentials that he's got. Okay, None of us do. And that's somebody that you can trust, and it's not based upon your reason, it's based upon what he's revealed. And your reason can apprehend and grasp it, but your reason is not governing it. That's the idea. Okay, we are up on our first break. You'll notice that we're going to run a little long on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. 
Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. We're back. Uh, warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is preaching narcissist Jesus and not giving you the real Jesus. Yeah, I thought that was clever. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, right in the middle of the of the page, the homepage there, you'll see our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you're joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, and it makes it, uh, you know, the more crew members we have, it makes it so that we can... And really anticipate, uh, you know, what monies we're going to be bringing in so that we can plan our budget accordingly. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, remember that we're in the middle of our bake sale. If you haven't already picked up your Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt, um, they are fantastic. And we're, by the way, we still have the, uh, the bracelets for sale that my mother-in-law made that you can get the, the link. You just go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and, uh, everything should be available there for you to, uh, be able to get a copy of, well, get your own edition of the t-shirt. So, okay, now let's, you know, I'm looking at my time here. I'm going to have to save the Patricia King update for tomorrow. Well, actually, the next time I get to it, I think we're going to do our light edition tomorrow. So we'll do Patricia King the next time we do a standard edition of Fighting for the Faith. What I want to do right now 
And like I said earlier at the in the program, I want to take a look at some of the things that you know. Let's take a look at Rabbi Khan, the t- the Bible teacher. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up and now is because, like I said, I wanted to to deal with the harbinger as the harbinger itself. I didn't want to you know confuse the issue because I thought it was really important that we address what's brought up in that uh, book straight up and straight on. And uh, and now that we've done that, I would like to go back and kind of ask the question. And you know, the idea is this: is that since uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn is you know now a New York Times best-selling author, and you know he's made the rounds on different television programs and uh, and continues to you know have speaking engagements and things like that, it's it's pretty well, it's pretty safe to say that uh, there's going to be more people than ever. Who are going to be Googling his name and want to know more about what he teaches and may want to hear more of his teaching. So the question is, is that if if like the average person on the street were to get onto their computer, pull up their web browser, Google Rabbi Jonathan Kahn uh, and his teaching, and they were to find his, you know, his teaching, what would they hear? Would it be a faithful handling of God's word? Or would it be something different? That's the question that needs to be asked. And the only way to answer that is by listening to some of the things that he said. Now, I, uh, Rabbi Khan, uh, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Khan has a Vimeo account. And if you, um, and so if you go to Vimeo and you type in Jonathan Khan, C-A-H-N, um, then you will find that he has uh, close to 200 videos posted on his Vimeo account. Many of them, like within the last few months, so it's clear that you know he's trying to uh, you know ride the wave of his own success. And what you find is is that the names of these little mini messages that are posted on Vimeo, well, some of them are problematic. And what I've what I've learned is by clicking on different videos and listening to him, listening to what he has to say in there is that there's a whole host of videos that have some really strange names. Um, and he's really good at, let me me put it this way. He's really good at coming up with titles that are eye catching and might grab your attention. And based on the titles, you might think one thing, but when you listen to it, it, it's clear that he's doing something else. So I would say, uh, Jonathan Kahn is clearly a good marketer and he's, really adept at, um, well, at coming up with titles for his videos. But that being said, um, there there are some videos here that make you just scratch your head and go, huh? Let Let me give you an example. One of the videos posted on Vimeo is entitled, Entering Your Prophetic Destiny. Entering Your Prophetic Destiny. And, well... See if you can make heads or tails of this teaching. Here's uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. Behind what you just saw a little later on. But God says, I know the plans I have for you. The word there for plans. That's Jeremiah 29:11, a favorite verse that's ripped out of context by, well, people in the seeker driven movement and other places. Um, in Hebrew is the word Macha Shabbat which can mean a device, it can mean a machine, it means something that's so exact, it can work like the exact a machine functioning. God has an exact plan for your life where everything works together. And it- yeah, forget the fact that that's to the, um, written to the exiles of Judah. It's not just that he knows it's going to happen, 
but he actually speaks his plan. He causes it to happen in our lives if you're in God's will. In Mark 14, you, if you have, you can turn. If you're in God's will. Mm, sounds like a confusion of law and gospel. Turn to it if you can. We'll be there for a little bit. You can turn to these, but I'm just going to go forward. Mark 14, verse 13. He sent forth two of his disciples. Two weeks ago, it was Palm Sunday. He said to them, go into the city, and there you'll meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes, say to the keeper of the house, the rabbi asks, where is the guest chamber where I will eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room furnished, prepared. There you'll make ready for us. His disciples went out. They went to the city. They found it just as he told him. And they prepared the Passover. Now this is a perfect example of following the will of God into the prophetic destiny of God. This message is called Entering Your prophetic destiny he sends yeah okay you'll notice here just quick i mean just rough cut discernment what's he doing this is narcissistic eisegesis by rabbi khan two of his disciples go into the city so the center of god's will for their lives is simply follow what he said go into the city once they go into the city they're in the perfect will of god it opens up the next door there you will see a man carrying a pitcher of water and there, think about it. It doesn't say there's going to be a man waiting for you with a pitcher of water. Simply, the man will be carrying it. In other words, it's already in motion. It's only going to be like a, a little window of, mo of opportunity where they can meet. So it points to something not planned and natural at all. The man has to already be in the act of carrying the water, moving, and just as the disciples enter in. None of them could have planned it. In fact, I mean, you know, they're listening to him. They're they take some time listening. They're going to go. They might, take, they might take a few seconds. They might take some minutes talking to each other. But whatever they do, in the end, it's going to happen exactly when the man's carrying the pitcher of water. God's appointed time. When you follow God's will, you end up in his appointed destiny. Prophetic destiny. The appointed time he has for your life. Now, here's another... Now, notice what he's doing here. He's taking a passage that isn't about you and somehow making about your prophetic destiny. That's not what that text is about. So, you know, as I'm listening to this, I mean, what I see that uh, Rabbi Khan has in common with a lot of the seeker-driven guys is narcissistic eisegesis. Not actually dealing with the subject of a text, but somehow twisting it and making it about, well, you which then might explain why he takes Isaiah 9.10 in the Harbinger and makes it about the United States. There's a hermeneutical pattern that I'm beginning to see emerge here. Example in the Bible, 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, Samuel the prophet, Shmuel, he takes a flask of oil, he pours it on Saul's head, and he kisses him, and he says, Hasn't the Lord, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance. When you leave me today, he says to Saul, you'll meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah, at the border of Benjamin. They'll say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. Now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there one will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gilbeah, 
of God where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. They will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you'll prophesy with them and you'll be changed into a different person. It's great that he's reading so much scripture. I mean, it's rare that we see that nowadays. So you got to give him props for that. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now watch what he does with this text about Saul. Now amazing. Notice what he's saying. That's amazing. You're going to go here, and as you go here, you're going to see this man. This man will say to you this and this and this. You will then go here and you will see three men. One will have this, one will have this, one will have this. You will accept this and then you will go further. When you go further, you will see the prophets coming down at that moment. At that moment. Now, how could anybody put that together? Only God could put that together. True. That when Saul hears Samuel and he maybe waits, maybe maybe it's, it's a few minutes, maybe it's, maybe it's 20 minutes, what, he goes out, maybe it's right away. He, whatever he goes, that's when it's going to happen. Saul is walking, by the he's in the anointing of God, and he's walking in the exact presence of God, the exact appointed destiny. Now, now he, his life is going to have a downfall because he's going to turn away from that at one point. But there is a perfect will of God, an exact will of God, a prophetic destiny, for you to be in the exact place, the exact time that God wants you to be in his perfect will for your life. Okay, these texts aren't teaching that. You see what's going on here? We've now taken a text that's about somebody else and we're now making it about you. Wrongly, too. And once, you know, in God, you could, if you didn't follow God, you could never know it. But in God, you can know it. So this is kind of like the messianic Judaism version of purpose-drivenism. Hmm. Once called, once God called Abram to leave Ur, that was it. That he could never find the perfect will of God in Ur anymore. He could never find it if he didn't follow God. It didn't matter what he did. He could have gone to church. He could have gone to the first the choir, the first Baptist church of Ur. It didn't matter. He was not going to find the perfect will of God until he did what God said to be in it. King Saul was told to wait for the prophet Samuel. Wait, just wait. But instead, he did something else. He took it upon himself to offer up the sacrifice as if he were a priest. Samuel rebuked him. God's perfect will at that moment was just don't do anything. Just wait. Okay. Yeah, so as I, you know, as I peruse his uh, Vimeo channel, I mean, let me give you an ex another example of one of the uh, the videos available on his Vimeo channel. One's entitled, Messiah's Cosmic Cataclysm and the Hidden Writing of 30 AD. <laughs> huh? When I listened to it, I mean, um, what he was doing was finding extra-biblical evidence in the Talmud that supports the, the, the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that can actually be beneficial. But the way he's pitching it is that he's got some hidden secret that he's got to uh, unveil. And then another one of his videos, actually two of them, there's part one and part two, how to fulfill prophecy. The, uh, the, the description reads, 
the followers of the Messiah are called to actually fulfill prophecy and the secrets and keys of how to how you can fulfill prophecy and God's calling on your life. Yeah, so um yeah, here's the idea is that when we take a look at um the overall teaching of Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, well, it's truly a mixed bag. Truly a mixed bag. And um if your attitude in a situation like that is I'm going to eat the meat and spit the bones, it's clear that there's going to be some pretty substantial bones that are going to need to be spit. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, the reason I bring all this up now is that, you know, I wanted to, like I said, deal with the harbinger straight up and then circle back and take a look at, you know, the overall tenor, the woof and warp of uh, of uh, Rabbi Khan himself. And what I find is is that he's got some pretty unique and strange teachings and um, some bad hermeneutical uh, devices that he employs. And uh, he definitely is one of these guys who engages in narcissistic eisegesis. So, you know, let me just put it this way. Uh, Buyer beware. That's probably the kindest way that I can put it. There's, um, there's enough there that, you know, enough red flags and smoke to make me go, "Mm, yeah, there's, there's some problems. So, all right, moving along. From the Christian Post, I'm just going to read part of this article to set up the next hour. Headline reads, The Other Iranian Revolution, written by uh, Uwe Simonetto and uh, Matthias Pankow. Okay, Um, the subtitle of the article reads, The Godless Eastern, in, in Godless Eastern Germany, Iranian refugees surprise pastors with their interest in Christianity. Again, you can find this at Christianity.com. Just, you know, in their search topic, look under The Other Iranian Revolution, um, and you'll find the article. But uh, here's what the article says. God must have been uh, laughing up his sleeve, muses Jobst Skan, the uh, retired bishop of the Independent Lutheran Church in Germany, is applying a German phrase of Psalm 2, uh, verse 4, to the baptism of seven former Muslims from Iran. Early Easter morning, the seven were baptized in the Berlin parish where Schoen uh, served as associate pastor. The baptisms were an emblem of something bigger, a nationwide surge of such conversions in several denominations and a spate of reports of Muslims seeing Jesus in their dreams. But Martin Luther's Bible translation, now nearly 500 years old, also played an important role in their story. The group baptism happened at an unsettling time for European Christians during Lent. Radical Muslims had handed out large numbers of Qurans on street corners and announced plans to distribute 25 million German-language copies of their holy book in order to win Germans to their faith. But on the night before Easter, some 150 worshipers filed silently into St. Mary's Church in Zellendorf, which, by the way, is a Lutheran church, not a Catholic church, uh, in the Zellendorf district of Berlin, Berlin to witness conversions in the opposite direction. Until midnight, the sanctuary was dark. Then Gottfried Martin's uh, senior pastor chanted from the altar, Glory to God in the highest. All at once, the lights went on, the organ roared, and the faithful broke jubilantly into song. We praise you, we bless you, we worship you. Like Christians everywhere, they celebrated the resurrection of the Lord. 
For the six young men and one woman in the front pew, the moment had additional significance. They were placing their lives in danger in exchange for salvation. Under Islamic law, apostasy is a capital crime, a fact brought home to the German public by press reports about Iranian pastor Youssef uh, uh, Nadarkhani, an ex-Muslim who was sentenced to death in Tehran. Some of the converts at St. Mary's were themselves persecuted before fleeing to Germany, now home to the largest Iranian community in Western Europe, numbering 150,000. Quote, these refugees are taking unimaginable risks to live their Christian faith, says Martins, who ministers to one of Germany's most dynamic, uh, it, it, to one of Germany's most dynamic parishes, which has grown from 200 to over 900 members in 20 years. He views the conversion of a growing number of Iranians in, Germ in Germany as evidence of God's sense of irony. Quote, Imagine of all places, God chooses Eastern Germany, one of the world's most godless regions, as the stage for a spiritual awakening among Persians. Martins exclaims, according to a recent University of Chicago study, only 13% of all the residents of the formerly communist part of Germany attest to belief in God. Uh, this next section is called The Vision Thing. The Berlin baptism is a small piece in a mosaic of faith covering all of Germany, crossing denominational barriers and extending into Iran itself. Some German clerics speak of a divinely scripted drama that includes countless reports of Muslims having visions of Jesus. According to Martins and others interviewed for this article, most of these appearances follow a pattern reported by converts throughout the Islamic world. Muslims see a figure of light sometimes bearing the features of Christ, sometimes not. But they instantly know who he is. He always makes it clear that he is the Jesus of the Bible and not the Isa of the Quran. And he directs them to specific pastors or priests or congregations or house churches where they later hear the gospel. Uh, Thomas Schurmacher, chair of the Theological Commission of the Evangelical World Evangelical Alliance, comments on this pattern, quote, God sticks to the Reformation doctrine that faith comes by receiving the word through scripture and preaching. In these dreams, Jesus never engages, as, engages in hocus-pocus, but sends these people to where the word is faithfully proclaimed. This is why Martin says he cannot dismiss such narratives as, quote, a confessional Lutheran, I'm not given to schwammerei, he says, using Luther's derogatory term for religious enthusiasm, but these reports of vision sound very convincing. Now, I'm going to stop right there. You can read the rest of the article at Christianity Today, and I'll send out a link to it on Facebook and Twitter. But what we're going to do, um, or we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to play for you the uh, interview I recorded earlier today with Dr. Uwe Simonetto, who was uh, the, the guy who co-wrote this article and delve into this question of what are we to make of this? You know, like I said at the, the beginning of the program, this is one of those stories that, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, I can't debunk it. Um, at least I haven't seen a way to debunk it. And the fruit of this is exactly what we would expect to see if this were really, truly a vision of Christ. I know that sounds kind of out there, but stay with me because, you know, again, keep in mind, Christianity is a miraculous faith, and uh, what we're seeing happening in Germany, this is a fascinating story. And where the action is at is not in the visions themselves, it's in the fact that Christ, if this is truly true, is uh, pointing people to faithful congregations, congregations where Christ's 
word and gospel are being preached and they're being converted by the word of God being preached in these churches, not by the visions per se. So, yeah, stay tuned. Again, like I said, this is like uncharted territory for me. <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable with this topic, it's not even funny. But I, on the other end of the break, I've got my uh, interview with Uwe Simonetto as uh, I try to uh, you know, have a, a, an educated conversation with him regarding this article. All right, so if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. This is normally where we do our sermon reviews, so we're not going to go to the sermon review music. It's going to sound crazy off. Is It's going to sound like you're going to go, wait, where's the good, the bad, the ugly? It's not here. Yeah, I got going to preempt our sermon reviews with an interview regarding this story. All right, don't freak out. No good, the bad, the ugly here. Ready? See, there it isn't. <laughs> okay, so uh, what, we're, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to play the interview that I recorded earlier today with Dr. Uva Simonetto. Uh, regarding this story that's uh, appeared in Christianity Today. Again, the name of it is The Other Iranian Revolution. And I'll give, you know, in the interview, we'll we'll dialogue back and forth a little bit about how uh, Dr. Simonetto brought it to my attention. And, you know, again, this is one of those things. I'm not trying to do anything sensationalistic or, you know, try to say it's a harbinger or, you know, this is some kind of a sign of the end times. Hardly. It's It's none of that. 
This is instead something really rare, at least in my experience, and that is is that you know we in Christianity do have a category for the miraculous. God does act. God is sovereign. God, Christ is reigning and ruling from heaven right now, and so He's capable. He's capable and fully within His own right to bend the rules in His favor, if you would, and to you know to do things well that God would do. But the thing is, is that it's so rare that something like this comes up that it really even has the potential of standing up to scrutiny that I thought it would be interesting to cover the story and take a look at the the aspect of it that pertains to the fact that many of these Muslims who are coming to these churches, who are showing up at these churches, are claiming that the reason that they're showing up is because they had a dream or a vision where Jesus, not Isa, in fact, they're very clear about this, that it's not the Isa of the, of the Quran who appeared to them, but the Jesus of the Bible who appeared to them, and he sends them to faithful churches. And since uh, Dr. Simonetto did the legwork, interviewed some of the people who were converted, his nephew did some of the legwork on this uh, article as well, I think it's an interesting story, and what we're going to do is just listen to the interview, and at the end of it, I'll kick it to you guys again, like I did with uh, the Rabbi Khan interview, and ask you, what do you think? Because, you know, I, this is one of those ones where it could potentially be the the, the real deal, that there's some good reasons to believe it might be. But that being the case, what's the right way to view it, and where and where would we go wrong and take it too far in a way that you, know, you see this that's the thing just because there's a miracle i mean we're you know obviously right off the bat it would be wrong for us to you know to somehow enshrine the places where these so-called visions took place and have people showing up at pilgrimages and praying the rosary and st stuff like that so i mean yeah it, there's you know there's a wrong way to handle this in a right way too but again this is just one of those from my experience in being a, an apologist a theologian and you know doing radio for four years here I can't remember the last time I've come across a story quite like this. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Uva Simonetto regarding his article entitled The Other Iranian Revolution. Here we go. All right, on the line I have Dr. Uva Simonetto. He is an international journalist with a Ph.D. in theology and sociology of religion. As a journalist, he has spent 55 years uh, out in the field, and uh, in fact, one of the things he covered uh, over the course of his career, he covered the Vietnam War for the German media, and he's currently the director for the uh, Lutheran Theology and Public Life in Capistrano Beach, California. Uva, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you, Chris. All right. So when I was in California a couple weeks ago, uh, you attended my lecture on evolution, and then afterwards we went to your home and uh, we, we had some very interesting conversations. But at that time when we were at your home, you told me about this story that just seemed kind of bizarre to me. And at the same time, you said this is probably one of the most important stories out there, and you gave me a like a pre-release copy of the article uh, but the name of the article, is, it's just been published in, at uh, Christianity Today, and the name of it is The Other Iranian Revolution. So why is this story so important? What's going on, and why are there not that many people covering it? Well, uh, why is it an important story? Uh, the whole world, or at least the, the thinking world, um, tends to fret about the attempts by radical Islam to Islamize Western Europe, you know, the influx of Muslims into Germany in particular, and to France, uh, 
um, some of which is relatively benign. I mean, they're, they're job seekers. Others uh, are more sinister, have, have a more sinister uh, intent, mm-hmm. namely to actually Islamize uh, Germany. And interestingly enough, this last Holy Week, Salafist Muslims, now these are the most radical, distributed on German sidewalks, street corners, 300,000 copies of the Quran and announced that they would be publishing 25 million copies of the Quran for free distribution to, to, to Germans. Clear attempt to turn Germans into Muslims or uh, as they, um, the Islamists feared, you know, Germany is a totally secularized uh, uh, nation uh, and ready, is an apple ready to, 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 to fall from the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, at that very point, first of all, it didn't fly very well with the Germans. So uh, suddenly they said, no, wait a minute, we might not be heavy duty churchgoers, but this is still uh, essentially a Christian culture and not a Muslim culture. And you guys are not very impressive with what you're doing. I mean, there, is, uh, there was no, um, there was no uh, huge uh, Islamic awakening uh, uh, along the Elbe and Rhine rivers or uh, in the Bavarian Alps or at the North Sea. Um, nor, indeed, um, was there much excitement about it, saying, well, let's be also liberal and sweet and dear with these guys. They just said, well, you know, that's fine, so you give me the Quran and, and we'll put it somewhere. But uh, that's it. Um, so they kindly put their copies of the Quran on, on their bookshelves, is what you're saying? They uh, put it bookshelves or somewhere, or, you know, if, 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 if uh, a, a table misses a leg or something, you know, put it there. As I mean, they do all sorts of things with these things. But uh, there, it's not, not, it certainly wasn't a huge success, or it, doesn't prom- it hasn't promised to be a huge success. And even if, if they publish 25 million, I don't think this is going to fly with your average German um, uh, Hans or Heidi. Uh, but um, the fascinating part of it is, I mean, while this was going on, I called my friend Gottfried Martens, who is the pastor of uh, St. Mary's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Berlin, Zehlendorf District, um, which is the f- fastest growing in a totally de-Christianized city in uh, the most de-Christianized capital of Europe, next to Prague. Um, this, this congregation is growing immensely. I mean, it grew in the last 20 years from 200 when I last when I attended to um, uh, nearly a thousand. By now, a standing room only. And Pastor Martins, who's been the pastor there for for a long time, mm-hmm. says, "You know what? Uh, this Easter, we're going to baptize ten uh, uh, Muslims, ex-Muslims, Iranians." Okay. And it turned out to be eight, and the others were baptized early or later, but it turned out to be wrong. And as he said, and, and, and don't think this is just one occurrence. It's been going on now every Easter night for the last several years that we're baptizing these guys. And uh, our classes, our catechism classes for new baptism next year or in between interim periods are full. And, he says, there's a genesis, uh, which is quite remarkable. 
Leipzig, which happens to be my hometown, which is in eastern Germany, mm-hmm. has a minute uh, independent Lutheran church. The main church there is the state-related Lutheran church, which is relatively liberal. Uh, but this minute church um, developed a program teaching German as a second language to Iranian asylum seekers or refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pastor who actually took out exams to be recognized by the state as a teacher of German as a second language uh, then used Luther's uh, Bible translation as the textbook and thus introduced these people to Holy Scripture okay. with the, the enormous success that anywhere between a third or half uh, of his congregation now uh, consists of former Persians. Now these people have been assigned, they, they were asylum seekers, it's always a long process before they, they are recognized as political refugees, so they are not normally allowed to leave the districts in which they live, and these were people who were assigned to the district of Leipzig, um, and, uh, and therefore um, that, is, that is the focus of their, their worship and of course their teaching. As soon as they are recognized as, uh, as bona fide refugees, they can move anywhere within Germany. And, of course, the most uh, logical place for them to go, where they're the most jobs and where the largest uh, Persian community uh, is, would be Berlin, which is just about an hour's train ride up the road from, uh, from Leipzig. Uh-huh. And so then these guys... Uh, the, the, the guys who moved to Berlin joined Martins' church in Mary's and started doing mission among their fellow Persians. And so there is a snowballing effect there. Now, not only is the church in Leipzig growing, and the same thing happens in Dresden, which is the capital of Saxony, but it's also in Berlin. And then wherever else they went in Germany, like, for example, Hamburg or, or Düsseldorf and other places, you have the same uh, situation. Okay. So that, is, that, that, that was the beginning of the story. When, when, uh, this is a discussion I had with Martins, starting out uh, as a discussion um, of, the, uh, of the Muslim attempts to uh, Islamize Germany. Right. Now, Pastor then, Martin's church, he, that's a, it's an independent Lutheran church. It's not one of those liberal state churches, right? Oh, no, no. no, no it's the SELK that is the free, it's, it's called the independent, or in German, Selbstständig Evangelisch-Lutherische Kirche, independent Lutheran, uh, evangelical Lutheran church, which is a small denomination mm-hmm. uh, of about 35,000 members throughout Germany, uh, but faithful, and uh, it is in communion with Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and actually currently has taken the lead role in the International Lutheran Council. Uh, so it's the SELK, the Independent Lutheran Church of Germany, that's taken over from Missouri in, for example, uh, um, ecumenical dialogues with uh, the Roman Catholics and, and, and faithful Anglicans, etc. Okay. And so it it has quite a significance in that sense. Got it. Okay. So, but uh, Pastor Martin's there. He's he's faithfully preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, administering the sacraments. Uh, he he hasn't decided to be a, a seeker-driven church and put in a a German praise band. No, no, no. He <laughs> he is. This is a smells and bells of church. It's um, okay. it is very liturgical, um, beautiful liturgy, by the way. I mean, really, 
sumptuous 16th century Lutheran liturgy, uh, um, beautiful singing, which you don't find in, in too many German state church congregations anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it's growing. And it, the other interesting thing about it is that um, the Persians interviewed for this, this story keep telling us that, and they told me and told Martins, that one of the things that particularly attracted them to, uh, to this form of worship is liturgy. Um, and he said, uh, they say, well, you know, of course, in Islam, that much one has to say about the Quran. The Quran states that um, God is beauty, that uh, beauty, aesthetics, and uh, divinity are synonymous. Uh, but then, of course, strangely, um, this does not extend to the beauty of music, uh, liturgical music, singing, chanting, instrumental music, and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. which they now find in uh, in these traditional Christian churches, such as the independent Lutheran church. And I find it very attractive. It's the same thing I hear from uh, um, ex-Muslims who are converting for example, uh, to Armenian, uh, the Armenian form of orthodoxy, or to Eastern orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the idea then is is that uh, you know that's actually one of the arguments that Muslims use to say that the Quran is true is because they claim that it's such it's so beautiful when you read it in Arabic, and that that supposedly is the ultimate proof that it's truly the word of God because, or the word of yeah. Allah because it's supposedly so beautiful. So there, there's, yeah. this, so, you know, I, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a big liturgical guy myself and I find that yeah. the structure and, and the nuances of the liturgy itself are, are just a great vehicle for carrying the gospel message. And the fact that the liturgy is entirely um, Bible-based. It is, right. it, is, it is none of which is of none of the liturgy. Not, not a single part of liturgy is cooked up by somebody, uh, some innovative pastor. If where it is, of course, then you know it is it's flawed. Uh, there is another thing, uh, Chris. I've got to tell you about this because it's um, um, probably even more significant. Okay. And that is these Persians, those who have been introduced to Christianity before fleeing Iran. One of the reasons why many flee from Iran is precisely because they have um, converted internally uh, to Christianity without uh, having actually taken the step. But many of these come to the, come to Germany already with some form of introduction to the Christian faith, and what they found. In, uh, in Iran, attending uh, Ill- illegal church services, house church services, and that sort of thing, is that in, in these congregations they hear for the first time that God is a loving Father mm-hmm. who desires to be a, a personal relationship with every human being. He is a Father, and, and, and of course um, God comes down to you he is not a God to be scared of, quite to the contrary. He wants to love you. Right. Um, whereas, of course, the, the Allah of, um, of Islam uh, is a distant God and remains distant even uh, to those who uh, ultimately enter paradise. Um, 
you'll never see him, you'll never reach him, you'll never communicate with him other than just praying to him. So that is a very, that is one of the most attractive features to them. Further, um, the, why Persians? Well, the Persians in Germany in particular, Germany has the largest uh, colony of ex- uh, Persian exiles in Western Europe, okay. about 150,000 in Germany. Um, and um, it's an old uh, tradition. It goes back, I mean, to well before uh, Islamists and, 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 and Khomeini and all that. It goes back actually some to the 19, early 19th century when uh, Persians felt a, a, a strong kinship with Germany, both the old nations, old culture, uh, cultures. They found uh, uh, they found uh, uh, yes the, the stress on education. Um, there have been, for example, German Ameri- German uh, German Persian or Persian German um, physicians associations, dentists associations, um, law lawyers associations, and that sort of thing. So they stream into Germany, and by and large are very, very educated. So, I mean, you get the cream of the crop. Right. Um, contrary to, for example, many of the um, Turkish Muslims who come from the Asian part of Turkey who are very primitive and, 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 and they never learn the language. These Persians learn German quickly uh, and, and uh, integrate very, uh, extremely well. Um, so... There is already an opening there. There's a cultural opening, if you will. Uh, there is an affinity with the local culture, uh, or at least a mutual respect. It's uh, Persia is a much older civilization than Germany, but nonetheless they feel an affinity to, uh, for, for the European and specifically the German uh, form of learnedness and, and um, academic pursuits and all that sort of thing. Uh, so that is one aspect that is, and then of course, uh, and they, they are familiar with German literature, and um, and uh, much of it, of course, is influenced by um, by Christianity. So um, there is an opening there, if you will. Okay. Now, in the article itself, there is a strange subheading, and the subheading to the art in the article says the vision thing. And oh, yes. the, so, okay, so far we've talked about the fact you got 150,000 uh, Persian Muslims living in Germany, and, and a lot of them are converting to Christianity through kind of the, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, some of the well-thought-out evangelical uh, evangelism uh, techniques of teaching them uh, German as a second language using Martin Luther's Bible. I mean, obviously we believe that faith comes by hearing and that God works via yeah. means. But ne- but in this article is this kind of wild card subheading about the vision thing. Explain to me what that is all about. And, well, it and- looks like a wild card, but it actually t- um, uh, it actually ties into what you just said. You know that uh, that faith comes by reading, by hearing, by listening, by uh, the text. Um, let me let me go back a little further okay. um, uh, to explain uh, where I'm coming from here. Um, when I was 
the religious affairs editor of United Press International, based in Washington. Um, I discovered these conversions triggered by visions. Oh, a dozen years ago, about. That's the first time I heard of them. And um, I didn't hear this from just sort of, you know, Pentecostals or what, whatever. I mean, people who were more inclined to this whole thing. But these, the, I have these had these reports from rock solid Lutheran or Roman Catholic or Presbyterian um, uh, sources, uh, and from uh, all parts of the world. Um, it, for example, in the days of the Taliban, when the Taliban still ruled Afghanistan. Entire Muslim mosque congregations in the eastern part of Afghanistan suddenly converted to Christianity, secretly, obviously, they had to be very careful about that, with their imams being trained by Presbyterian Bible college, uh, colleges along, uh, on, on the, um, on the um, Pakistani side of the border. I have this from... Uh, the then leader of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of, um, of, of Pakistan, who told me in great detail about this. Now, we're, here we're talking about uh, an era just before 9-11 and then after 9-11. So we're, we're talking about uh, something uh, quite fascinating. The same thing I heard from uh, places like Saudi Arabia. I ran into uh, a Norwegian Lutheran, uh, who spends half the year in uh, a theologian spends half the year in um, in Egypt and um, catechizes in the middle of the night uh, Muslim leaders, chiefly imams, who sort of visit him through a back door um, at three o'clock in the morning. Wow! And then I heard that the same thing. I heard the same thing from. Uh, um, uh, from Algeria, etc., etc., etc. And then, uh, uh, in, in each case, um, there was there were visions involved. Same, by the way, uh, from uh, from uh, I- Iran. I mean, uh, this is across the board. In every case, visions were involved. And what happens is, and this has been confirmed now by many, many, many of these Persians uh, in Germany and Austria and Switzerland, um, and in, indeed uh, some we uh, encountered here in the United States. Um, here's what happens. In their dream, they have they're visited, they see sometimes only a figure of light, or uh, sometimes the figure of light has the features, the known features of, uh, of Christ. And uh, they know instantly that this is not the Isa of the Quran, as the way uh, the Arabs uh, pronounced Jesus, um, but that it is the Christ of the Christian Bible. Okay. And the, the, the only thing they get out of this is that they're being directed to um, certain congregations, pastors, mission stations, or whatever is available where 
the word is uh, properly taught. And that's it. I mean, there, is, there, no, there are no miracles other than the actual vision. Okay. Um, and they are being directed very, very clearly to, um, to assorted places which have one thing in common. They are all, if you will, conservative Christian institutions. They might be uh, they're very often Lutheran, sometimes Baptist, sometimes uh, Presbyterian, but Orthodox Presbyterian, um, or Roman Catholic. Um, and then, uh, and they do that. And then, of course, then you have the, that is the first step, and then the rest follows. Okay, so these converts to Christianity from Islam. Yeah. The the th- they, the thing they that a, a lot of them not all of them but have in common is is that their initial interest in Christianity is sparked by what they claim is a vision of Jesus and Jesus he doesn't give them much details but just tells them to go to this church or that church yeah well no but hang on we have to be more more precise here okay the initial interest might have actually already arisen. Um, from um, a discussion, that's particularly true in, in the case of Iran, um, discussed with the, um, the Islam, as in, the manifestation of Islam in their lives, especially after Khomeini. I mean, as, as uh, uh, friends of mine in Germany tell me, the best Christian, most successful Christian missionary ever in Persia is uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, because of this sort of primitive form of Islam, and that's not the learned Islam of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the High Middle Ages, but this is a very primitive form of Islam. And that, of course, turns them off. The violence, the, the, um, uh, the cruelty, the, um, the mass executions, the uh, uh, horrible way they, 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 they treat women and children, um, all that. So, I mean, it, uh, that conditions them. Then... The, uh, then, of course, the actual uh, starting point of this, the spark that flies, uh, would be these visions of Jesus as they describe it. They, as I said, they, it's not necessarily that a, a figure of Jesus stands before him. It might be a figure of light. It might just be a, a voice. It might just be a, an understanding of where to go, but very precisely where to go mm-hmm. for uh, uh, for uh, being instructed in a Christian faith. Okay, now imme- That's scripture. Okay, immediately there's there's going to be people who are going to dismiss and discount these accounts, and you know, in in our circles, you know, the the first thing that's going to come out of their mouth is ah, shvermerai. This is this is you know some kind of enthusiasm that's going on here. Um, is is it that? No. Well, that is precisely what people like Martin, I mean, it, it, Martin's uh, in, in Berlin, for example, is as hard-nosed and orthodox Lutheran as I am or anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, we don't have, by the way, Schwermerei is, of course, an application of, um, is trying to uh, pull the, the eschaton in the, uh, into the presence. Um, this is... We have to accept it. Because, I mean, I, for example, a friend of mine who is a very learned um, theological advisor um, uh, to the Pope, or the last Pope, at least, he's a, he's a, a German monk uh, operating out of Brussels. 
and he's as hard-nosed as anything. He certainly doesn't tend to be a schwärmer. Um, and he says you have to accept it, and then, you know, then one has to be quite simple-minded about it. I mean, if if uh, if the shepherd is, uh, uh, wants to gather his flock, surely he can use any means uh, at his disposal or at his choosing. Mm-hmm. And if it happens to be a vision to somebody in the dream, which is not unheard of in, in scriptural circles, because I mean, it's quite a bit of that in the Bible, um, so be it. It would be... Um, it would be more. Uh, I would be more suspicious of this if I were. Um, if suddenly, all sorts of funny things happened. Uh, for example, as in, um, uh, as in um, various Catholic um, um, uh, visions, you know, where certain miracles are being performed, or mm-hmm. where. Uh, where we're just washing your face in water and that sort of thing, uh, or where where doctrines are being proclaimed in Lourdes, for example, uh, affirming uh, a non-scriptural doctrine, namely the um, uh, namely the immaculate uh, um, conception of Mary, of Christ, but of Mary herself, that Mary was born without sin, which is uh, those visions of Lourdes entails that. You have none of that. Okay. What we're discussing here is simply that they are being directed to an address or to passages in Scripture, depending on what, uh, you know, but it's usually to an address mm-hmm. or to uh, to a congregation or to to Christians, faithful Christians who can then we take it from there, you see. Right. That's all, all that's happening. But um, I would say now from my research going back a dozen years, and especially my research in this of this particular story, um, that uh, it seems to be a majority of, um, of uh, Persians or, uh, or ex-Muslims converting to Christianity on the basis of um, of these visions that uh, that they've had, we have to uh, live with it. I mean, it's uh, as I said, the, the sources I have are rock solid theological sources, Daniel Schwammer. Right now, so you know, are, these Muslims aren't having continued visions. They're not receiving words of God or or having ecstatic experiences on an ongoing no, basis. No, none of that. No, no continued visions. I mean, that's it. Boom, he comes to. Uh, Go to 55th and 3rd or somewhere, and you know there is something. You know what I mean? It's a, right, right. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very clear direction, which, look, uh, something like that happened to me. Okay. Not in, not in a dream, but um, that I suddenly knew, uh, heard myself say something that I, uh, I knew didn't, certainly didn't come from my... Uh, out of my own intellect, uh, and then I followed that. It, it can happen to you, and um, and here it is, and it, it has these consequences. Now, there's another thing. Um, when this story appears, first in Germany, um, but only about St. Mary's and the church in Leipzig and Dresden and some other stuff, we were suddenly, my nephew, who is helping me with this, and he's a Lutheran pastor and, and a journalist, um, 
inundated with emails from other people, like, for example, a deaconess who runs a small congregation in Berlin. Um, now, she's a, a deaconess serving a parish of a, a, a something called the Landeskirchliche Gemeinschaft. These are community, these are pietistic communities within the otherwise liberal state-related church, but the communities themselves are pietistic. They're not orthodox either, but they are, they are good, faithful uh, Protestant Christians of an evangelical sort of bent. Mm-hmm. And so here's this deaconess uh, uh, who is running a small congregation, and she had about 50, it's an old one, I mean, it goes back to the 19th century, um, in, in a working-class primarily oriental district of, of Berlin. And she had about 15 members. And whammo, all of a sudden, 15 Persians come to her through uh, the intermission of, um, uh, intercession of a, of a Persian Christian woman who had been badly tortured in, in, in Tehran before fleeing to Germany. Um, and these Persians underwent then, it's another interesting thing, underwent four or five months uh, intensive catechetical training uh-huh. in scripture, in scripture, in liturgy, uh, and, uh, uh, and in, in the confessions. I mean, she's also using uh, Luther's small catechism, this deaconess. Um, Luther's Catechism, and the hymnals. I mean, the hymns play a very important role in this. I mean, uh-huh. all these persons learn, learn hymns. And then they presented themselves for, uh, for christening. And guess what? And that's doubling the congregation. Then they brought along 50 others. All right? <laughs> and now, on uh, uh, week after next, the deaconess will baptize... Fifteen more, and there are already uh, now a hundred in a congregation that uh, until Easter only numbered fifteen. Um, same thing is true with Martins, by the way. That he's baptized on the on the twelfth of August. He's going to baptize another batch of thirteen uh, Persians. Once I did that, and I verified this, and you know uh, checked. And I'm a journalist. I do it the journalistic way. Then I found out that there is a, uh, a Persian Presbyterian pastor, is actually um, uh, a pastor of the PCUSA, otherwise a, loose, a, 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 a liberal sort of denomination, but he is very, very conservative. And he has already baptized 500 um, Ex-Muslims. Okay, hold on. In a small, uh, okay, reformed hold, church. Hold on a second, okay? Usually we see growth like that in the seeker-driven churches in the United States, and it's because they're sending out postcards to everybody in creation to let them yeah. know that they're going to be doing a sex series yeah. sermon. Yeah. These are churches that are not advertising, that are not marketing, no. that all no. of a sudden no. Persians are small showing congregations. That there's small congregations, Persians are showing up on their doorstep saying, I had a vision where I saw Jesus, not Isa, and they and he said to come here. Yeah. Well, take for example this deaconess here that I just mentioned, okay? The woman who came to her, all right, the first woman who came to her um, was the one who had been tortured in Tehran and in, 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 in prison. 
so much so that she has gone totally bald she, uh, from all the beating. She lost her hair. Mm. Um, and she was introduced to the Deaconess by a, a, a German social worker, a secular social worker, okay? And then asked to be instructed in the faith. Hmm. Now, the uh, the uh, next bunch, the, these 15 others that she brought along over the uh, uh, period of time, um, came to her because they had been directed to her in visions. To not to the deaconess at first, but to the to this particular woman who then took them there. And they, they and and, uh, and uh, they then told the deaconess. By the way, a very sober, very, uh, very remarkable uh, lady. And, and German deaconesses are slightly different from uh, Missouri Synod deaconesses. They are um, they are actually all celibate, as you know, and uh, mm-hmm. they walk. They sort of look like nuns. Um, so you have that. The same thing is true. Uh, from the uh, applies to this reformed pastor, the Presbyterian pastor, Sipari is his name, um, who has a sub congregation, a Persian sub congregation of a larger state related reformed congregation. Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, no, they're not advertising. They don't take ads out. They don't send. Uh, no, this is just. Uh, it's by word of mouth. It is. Uh, yeah, that is basically it. Now there are others. Um, then, then next to it again that Easter, um, a Baptist church down the road experienced something similar. Then I found out the same Easter night in, in western Germany, in Mülheim, in the Ruhr district, um, good, solid, thriving, but not mega church, Baptist church of, I don't know, two, three hundred members, they baptized uh, 13, 14 people uh, and are in the process of baptizing more. And then I was directed, and that, that, that of course, became very strange, uh, to um, a congregation, a Baptist congregation in Nuremberg, which had a, um, uh, an American pastor by the name of Bachman, uh, who is now back in the States. Um, and he, over the years, so he said, well, this has been going on for the last 20 years, and over the years I have baptized at least 2,000. Okay. And he said, I don't, you, yeah. <laughs> So, so what do you make of this? I mean, you, to the best of well, your journalistic I'm, ability, I mean, it... it, it yeah, my, my journalistic ability is, look, I, uh, you, uh, one has to say one thing about, or I have to say one thing about journalism. A journalist is, um, uh, ideally should be a guy, or if you will, a woman, um, with an unquenchable curiosity, okay? I... Stand in awe of a development that uh, is rationally inexplicable. It is my obligation to then start probing, and I did, and then I put my people out to help me with it, I'm especially my, my nephew, whom I've trained as a, as a journalist and who, who, who studies as a theologian. I also directed. Um, 
and uh, and to make sure that this is not some bogus thing. For example, um, people coming to, uh, becoming Christians in order to have their refugee status recognized. Um, but the interesting thing, and that, that is of course the argument that um, that the German state authorities sometimes use in rejecting applications by Persians who say, "Then we you know we're." Uh, we are Christians, and uh, now if, I, we, we, if you return us to, to Iran, uh, you might be hanged. Um, but the, the point is that, first of all, all these uh, Persians um, willingly undergo very long catechetical instruction, so you don't do that sort of thing flippantly. Right. Secondly... All the pastors that I and, and, and the deaconess that I've spoken with um, are very clear in telling these um, um, these converts, look, this is no guarantee uh, for a green card, as it were, or you know, the permanent refugee status. Mm-hmm. Um, you you will still. Uh, you still run the risk. You still have to uh, justify things. You still have to uh, declare, have to explain to the authorities or to the courts, these are civil courts in Germany, um, uh, why you fled Iran from Iran. Um, I mean, that is no, that, that doesn't offer an automatic protection. Um, right. And the pastors that I spoke to, especially Martins in Berlin, uh, who do sometimes or often accompany uh, uh, their wards to those hearings, uh, make it clear, look, uh, yes, we, we actually, we have, we have checked this out, we are experienced ministers, we know a phony from a, from a genuine Christian, especially since, here's one, one proof, many of them, for example, the ones, in, uh, the, the ones who initially came to Martins' church, Already have recognized refugee status, okay. so right. they could, if they were phonies, they could then just say, "Well, well, thanks very much, and here's my green card, and uh, Bob's your uncle, and off I go, and and then <laughs> and, and go into a, you know, go into a porno show instead, or do something like that." Right. This is not the case. Quite to the contrary, they they go out and uh, and uh, do more mission. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating story, and obviously, you know, we're we're called by Scripture to test all things, and well, we should test all things. And now, here's uh, let me add this to it, please. Okay. Uh, as I said, I'm I'm focusing on Germany because that's where I discovered it, and also because Germany has the largest uh, um, uh, Persian uh, colony in Western Europe, second largest being in England. But um, when this story went out, suddenly the Austrian, the Wiener Zeitung, the newspaper in Vienna, came up with a story. They had the same thing. And then uh, I did the thing with Switzerland, and then the Swiss say, "Well, yeah, we have the same stuff going on here. We, um, we have." And they always seek out. Oh, this is another thing. It's very important. They seek out mainly, but not exclusively, um, pastors or congregations of the so-called free churches. These are not state-related churches, like the independent Lutherans, like the Baptists. Right. 
Um, but many uh, go to faithful pastors of the state-related churches, like, say, the Lutheran Church of Saxony or uh, the uh, Union Church of, I don't know, uh, uh, well, the Lutheran Church of Württemberg, for example, or Bavaria, places like that. Uh-huh. Never to the liberal ones, okay? That, that, uh, that is included. And the other thing is, the reason why we don't have a complete figure is that these churches, these, these state-related churches, um, the church bodies, uh, feel are embarrassed by this because uh, they say that it interferes with, uh, with interface dialogues. Huh. Um, you know, so, uh, for example... Where the Steakness is, I mean, her, she belongs to a subgroup of the state-related church of Berlin-Brandenburg. Um, they, the, that church has a regional, uh, has a parish pastor, uh, who's a woman, and has a regional superintendent, like a regional bishop, who's also a woman. Uh, the, the, the parish pastor never set foot at this, uh, uh, Steakness's little uh, uh, sanctuary. Um, and it's quite hostile to it. Uh, the the superintendent went once, but then uh, stopped communicating. The Roman Catholics, so I'm told, I mean, the the, um, the senior theologian of the uh, um, European Evangelical Alliance, Thomas Schirmacher, uh, tells me, you know, that you have the same thing in Catholicism. In Catholicism. A lot of faithful Catholic priests baptize Persians. Um, but the, uh, their bishops, like the Protestant bishops, uh, then don't uh, take note of it or actually embarrass it or talk it down because they want to, they want to uh, practice interfaith dialogue. Now, here is the lunacy about all this. Take the, the, evangel- the, the Protestant churches in Germany. Mm-hmm. Here are the people who presume to engage in interfaith dialogues while they themselves... Um, allow same-sex couples to in, uh, to uh, uh, live in, in, in parsonages, while, while they uh, conduct same-sex uh, blessings of same-sex unions. And all that sort of thing. The Catholics don't do that, but many of the Protestants do. I mean, how can they be taken seriously by um, by Muslims in whose own religion, um, whose own church law, the Sharia? Um, uh, stipulates um, uh, stipulates capital punishment for uh, for sodomy, um, and uh, so they think they can conduct this dialogue. Whereas the deaconess, uh, in, uh, the one the baptizing deaconess that I've talked about, um, who is always dressed in in in, in her uh, habit, um, lives in a neighborhood which is almost ninety percent Muslim. Uh huh. And says they treat me with the highest respect. They, they they see me as a holy woman. Of course, she has her head covered, her hair covered, uh, with a little white, stiff white cap, which is uh, the way deaconess is dressed in Germany. Um, and her, uh, she has long sleeves and that sort of thing. So they actually engage her in dialogue. That's another interesting thing. Uh, and Pastor Martins too, who uh, when he runs around there, of course, he wears dog collar. He doesn't. Run around in jeans like a slob or so, but he right. uh, wears clerics uh, to make sure that people see uh, recognize him for what he is. 
and that earns the respect of individual Muslims. I'm not saying that the that the, uh, the imams give them the necessary respect. Who knows? But uh, certainly the individuals, if they go into a shop or if they go into a coffee house or so, they will be treated respectfully, whereas nobody treats a bishop respectfully if uh, if he uh, uh, permits same-sex marriages right. or actually, as happens in Saxony right now, um, uh, actually dismisses pastors or church workers who oppose uh, then uh, use synodical decree allowing same-sex couples and parsonages. Right. So, you know, I mean, this is here, here, is, here is another thing which I find quite fascinating. We also must know that in Germany and in Austria and Switzerland, in the German-speaking countries, um, the younger generation of state-related uh, theologian, uh, church uh, uh, ministers tend to be more orthodox than the ones who come were sort of like our baby boomers here in the United States or the baby boomers' children. I mean, the, the younger ones who are in their 30s, 20s, 30s or so, there is a, is a return to, um, to orthodox Christianity, which is quite pronounced. And these people then um, uh, make an impression upon the Persians. I mean, the chance... Uh, if, if you have this movement of, of nations, of, of peoples, um, similar to what happened 2,000 years ago, from east to west, mm -hmm. and then they come to Germany, and they, here is the Andrian France and elsewhere, uh, and uh, here is the chance of uh, introducing them to Scripture, introducing them to Christ. And... Um, some people, free churches and faithful pastors, do this, but the majority don't. They say, well, let's just be lovey-dovey with each other and, and engage in interfaith dialogues and everything is fine. Let's donate a chandelier for the newest mosque, which is essentially what is happening. <laughs> right. Let's celebrate Ramadan with the Muslims, you know. Yeah, I know. I know. It is so absurd, and they don't. And you have this in this country, of course, as well. And it is the, the the absurdity is unfathomable. You just want to—I really want to take my big boot and kick them in the butt somewhere, you know. Right. And then I wouldn't get any resistance because it would be all squidgy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. Right. Right. Uh, it's, it's, um, so we have something here, Chris, that I find um, hugely compelling. Mm -hmm. um, we are being obviously directed. Or shown an opportunity, a chance. Obviously, we can all fail uh, in our human uh, behavior, but uh, I do believe that uh, uh, if Christ comes to you in his sleep, he doesn't do this because he, he has nothing else to do. You know? I mean, that's, um, <laughs> he's bored. <laughs> right. He's bored and he says, no, no, Mahmoud, I, I just want to have tea with you. you know? Right, right. See how your Muslims live in your tents. Um, I mean, that's, uh, because there is obviously something going on, and this is something you've got to tell your listeners. I mean, when 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 you hear not just one individual story from one particular region, but actually a global thing, that there, there is something going on, and that should be considered and, and weighed carefully. And obviously, you have to um, you have to measure to apply 
the one yardstick we are all given, which is scripture, right. uh, to these claims. But uh, show me a place in scripture where it says, no, God never appeared to anybody in, in a vision. I mean, then, then that would be a funny Bible. You know? Right. Well, you know, what's interesting about the story, just on its face value, is, is that it does parallel the incident that the Apostle Paul had when he was uh, on the road to Damascus. Road to Damascus, yeah. You know, so. it's, it's a very similar situation, except for they're obviously not being blinded and, and things like that. But you know, on the road to Damascus, Jesus directs um, you know Paul to uh, you know to Straight Street to a particular fellow who uh, knows the who knows the gospel, and that's the guy who preaches the gospel to him and baptizes him. So it, it's well, and this is this is what we have here. It is absolutely analogous. Now, yes, we can then we can then. Uh, be leery of the danger that this might lead to all sorts of uh, eschatological um, speculation, which um, one has to be very careful not to engage in. We cannot predict the time, um, uh, the time and day of Perusia, but um, right. uh, but that, that 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 is not what is being claimed here either. Um, mm-hmm. You don't know. Uh, we don't know what the uh, what God's plans are with it, with you. But obviously, it is not uh, clearly not that uh, we are all going to go down under. You see. Well, it's it's pretty clear that if if you have a Muslim uh, gentleman who uh, has a vision, you know, he claims that uh, Jesus appeared to him and told him to go to you know the corner of Fifty Third and, and uh, Straight Street, and he hears the gospel there. That if that man later uh, believes that he's called to go into uh, word and sacrament ministry, that he's not going to be engaging in interfaith dialogue as if uh, Muslim, Islam is somehow uh, just another path to God. And and you know, having come out of that circumstance, he's going to be a vocal advocate of repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and faith and trust in Christ alone. Uh, for salvation, which is going to really be a black eye uh, f- uh, for you know the liberal hierarchy, uh, you know in you know whatever group that he would want to serve in. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no, this is uh, this is very very clear. And by the way, uh, from what I'm he- hearing from Germany and Switzerland, because I did the, th- the same story for a Swiss magazine. Uh, Christian magazines called Factum, and um, they told me, "Well, we have the same thing here." Uh, what I hear is that they, that the the faith of these um, uh, of these these people is so remarkable. I mean, these are wonderful people. There's something else, Chris, here, which I, I, I might be. Uh, we might soon be out of time, but uh, let me stress this too. Okay. They. Here are people who, by and large, um, have left very comfortable homes, comfortable lives in Iran. I mean, uh, one person we interviewed on um, uh, a big supermarket, uh, had a villa by the sea, Another guy had uh, had um, been traveling around the world as an international uh, businessman. Um, 
for very Persian businesses. Um, and they, are, they come to Germany and live under very reduced circumstances for many years uh, until their status is recognized and they have rebuilt their lives um, even once they're recognized as, as, as asylum seekers, they're not just uh, there temporarily. You, you still have to uh, rebuild your life, your career, your, your finances, etc. You have to become fluent in, in, in German and in, in other languages. And, and uh, if you're a doctor, you know, you have to have your diplomas um, uh, recognized by, by German authorities, etc., etc., etc. A lawyer, same thing. But they are doing this. I mean, they literally are, have sold everything, given everything away for their faith, and then come over. And then the other thing is, they are also um, influencing um, conversions or the conversion movement, the evangelization movement, inside Persia itself. Hmm. Um, and to a large degree, I mean, there are conflicting figures, obviously. The Times of London uh, just had a huge piece um, last weekend uh, on, on what is going on in inside Persia, where I, up to, it's not according to the Times of London, according to a German radio station, up to more than half of all the young uh, and, and educated Persians, uh, and sometimes estimates to up to 70-80% are either already converts or uh, sympathizing with Christianity. Hmm. There are um, uh, missions, uh, often secretive missions, operating out of neighboring countries like Uzbekistan or so, where uh, there's an open global border to, to Persia, taking huge risks to do that. Another irony, I mean, I always like, uh, like my stories about, about the irony of God. Um, the, uh, the Islamists um, uh, have imposed the shadow uh, on, on the women. Mm -hmm. But th this obligation to wear a shadow um, actually helps uh, the evangelization of, uh, of Muslim women because... Now they can rush about from uh, to Bible school, Bible classes, and then they do all visit each other with a Bible hidden under their under their shadows. You see, they couldn't do this publicly or openly, and here they can they have it hidden. Um, and of course, you can't uh, you can't uh, give them a body check. So, right, yeah. Uh, all this helps. You know, all this helps, um, and this is something that's been confirmed to me now, but. I realized that when I wrote about this from Washington when I was uh, with UPI, uh, that I'd been told this by Persian Christians uh, who said, you know, don't, don't think we are all a bunch of morons. We actually know how to make good use of, of uh, repressive uh, laws by using them for our own purposes. Wow. So when all is said and done, um, you, you know, future historians might, or church historians might look back on, on this period um, of persecution uh, as one, a, a period of um, great uh, blessing. Right. Because, um, well, and that confirming, of course, Tertullian's uh, 
statement that the blood of the martyrs is the uh, is, is the seed of the church. Yep. Uh, many people get killed. Many people get tortured uh, for their martyrdom, but the church is growing wow. there, if not in uh, in other parts of the world. Well, it just goes to show you that uh, Jesus Christ has truly ascended to the right hand of the Father and currently reigns and rules, uh, you know, you know, from heaven. And, uh, and oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, man might have his ideas, but uh, Christ is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and will continue to draw yeah. people to His church. Yeah. Now, here's the other interesting thing, uh, because this sounds so unmodern or unenlightened you know, this story. It doesn't confirm uh, the, the uh, presuppositions of the Enlightenment. Right. Um, they're not being covered by the press. I mean, for example, the church in Berlin, where there's all this taking place, is the church of, uh, of Germany's or Europe's largest, biggest newspaper publisher, and her newspapers, even though I pointed the story out to them, don't even touch it. They right. don't even call you back. Right. And she is actually was she was probably sitting in that church service that you see in Christianity today. Right. Um, uh, you know where this this Easter morning service with the candles and all that sort of thing. Um, she probably was kneeling there with with all the rest of them, um, and her own papers don't cover it. And it's mind-boggling. I mean, how blind can you be? <laughs> well, I mean, even, even if you were a heathen, it would be interesting to uh, uh, follow. It's, it's it's astonishing. I'm telling you. Well, it, it, even though it doesn't fit any of the standard modern or even postmodern templates for a news story, it's absolutely fascinating, interesting. Yeah. And one of those ones that um, it's hard to overlook because the fruit that's coming out of this is that Muslims, our Muslim neighbors, you know, overseas are being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're hearing the word of God rightly preached. They're receiving the sacraments. They're being baptized. I mean, these these are things that uh, every Christian should be praising God for. And uh, and and yet it doesn't fit any normal thing, which basically tells you that Christ is really in control. And uh, in you know we can sit there and be fatalistic and say, oh, it's just a matter of time before the the utter Islamization of uh, Europe takes place. But it seems to me that uh, Christ is uh, calling people to His church and uh, converting them and sending them out as missionaries. And that Jesus Himself is waging His own battle against the Islamization of Europe. Yeah, it, 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 well, as I said, and He is gathering His flock. I mean, that is right. very, very, uh, very interesting. I mean, um, tell your readers to um, uh, to go to or your listeners, rather. Sorry, yeah. it's okay. I'm a newspaper man. Um, <laughs> um, to go to Christianity dot com. The website, it's on right now, it's still on use, it was a cover story, it's now, but it's still on their uh, current website, it's called The Other Iranian Revolution. Right, I'll, um, I'll send out a link to this on Facebook and Twitter when we, uh, when we air this yeah. interview too, so that uh, people can listen, because it's just one of those, it doesn't fit any standard template, I mean, this is just out of the no. box, it's 
something completely different. No, it doesn't fit any. Well, no, it doesn't fit any Enlightenment patterns. I mean, it does. It, 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 it is. It is um, commensurate with with the Christian faith. I mean, right. with, um, with biblical faith. So right. And we shouldn't be, as Christians especially, we shouldn't be surprised that something that we've learned since childhood uh, should suddenly occur and have very practical results. Right. It would be an odd God if he just um, uh, wrote a bit of a history book and, and, and uh, the rest of the thing uh, we leave to the, to the secularists to, right. to interpret, you know. And, you, um, and you're right in pointing out that this is not like a, the, a Pentecostal revival where people have ongoing so-called manifestations and visions. This is a one-time thing pointing them to where they can hear word and sacrament. Uh, you know, they can hear the, the law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the visions aren't recurring. This is just a one-time thing, and the fruit that it's born is uh, converts to uh, Christianity from Islam. That's right, yeah. No, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's, I mean, you know, um, again, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to ridicule uh, some of the Catholic visions uh, or vision reports. Uh, they might have different purposes. Might have different. I, I, uh, I researched uh, uh, Lord a great deal, for example. Um, but that's another deal. It is. It, um, it, it, God knows why it is being interpreted as something confirming a, a a doctrine that is not not biblical and is not uh, has not been a doctrine until uh, the 19th century, like uh, the. Um, Bodily assumption of Mary into heaven and then that sort of thing, right. but um, which is you know which is what Lord uh, one of the things Lord does. Lord has other very very interesting features that uh, uh, I would never wish to minimize or belittle because uh, I've been there and I've been very impressed uh, uh, by many many aspects of that. But um, here it is clear Reformation theology being confirmed by Christ Himself. It, Right, yeah. You know, no hocus pocus. Here you go. Why more? Here's the address. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings. Right. And, um, yeah. Wow. Be on your way. Yeah. You know? yeah kind of lend. You know, makes you wonder. You know, a, a good question, a follow up question for me to pitch to the people who listen to the program is: Is your church yeah. a, a, the type of church where Jesus would recommend Muslims come to to uh, hear the gospel? Yeah. That's that's a right. Uh, you know, kind of a, yeah. you know, as far as I want to push it. But, uh, Uva, thank you so much for uh, coming on Fighting for the Faith. You're very welcome. And fascinating Call article. Back when you ever have some. Will do. All right. And yeah, p- and next time you, you know, you, you keep me in the loop on your latest stories. I mean, it'd be interesting to, uh, you know, to have you on regularly. Yeah, fine. My next, uh, next story is going to be. I I, I will do something uh, um, uh, pre-election on Christianity today. But uh, I'll let you know in time. All right. Well, thank you, Uva. All right. All right. Okay. Lord's blessings. All right. That was my interview with Dr. Uva Semineto, uh, recorded earlier today regarding, again, his article in Christianity Today entitled The Other Iranian Revolution. So here's the question. I, I mean, like I said, I, I'm uh, this is uncharted territory for fighting for the faith. My question for you is what do you make of this? What do you think? You know, keeping in mind that First Thessalonians chapter five tells us to test all things, and uh, and Uva, you know, whom I've known for you know a while now, uh, is not somebody who is 
prone to you know be diverted by something like a Patricia King type story or whatever and he's uh taken the time to journalistically track this down and and uh you know the stories are consistent and these are muslims who claim that they've Jesus has appeared to them and told them to go to a, go to particular churches where they hear the gospel being preached by faithful ministers these are congregations across you know denominational lines that are still preaching the gospel and these muslims are being converted brought to repentance and faith and trust in christ for the forgiveness of your sins of their sins what do you make of it um maybe i'm just too skeptical maybe i just need to say yeah all right it looks like it's this is legit and then just move on but i'd love to get your feedback and that's why i i played the interview today so what do you think um the i i'm really honestly curious to see what you all think of this and so uh send me an email or you know it, it would be kind of silly to try to do it in a tweet but if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith my email address talk back at fighting for the that's where i want you to send these you can be my friend on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian you can follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen